This is Bonjour Chai, the J'accuse edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltz-Bovey in Toronto. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, yes, I have a new co-host. We will get to meet her, and we'll have a chance to talk about all sorts of things on our mind. And we'll have a discussion about bad behavior and cancel culture. And of course, we'll have our usual nachas and all of that too. Phoebe, welcome back to Bonjour Chai. You were here as a guest host a little while ago. Um, welcome to the co-host seat. Thanks, Avi. It's so great to be here. Um, wow, this is exciting. Excited yeah. to have some podcasting going. This is great. It's a new leaf. It's a different co-host. We're, we're, we're shaking things up in the CJN Podcast Network, and I'm glad to have you around. We've uh, gotten together. We've had some chats um, in the past little while in the lead up to this, um, and I'm happy to um, get into some of these um, in the future, in future weeks and stuff. Um, before we get really into that, though, uh, can you... Tell us a little bit about yourself, right? So you're Canadian, but you're also American. Not you're... Canadian. <laughs> oh, you're not Canadian at all. Not, you have Canadian not roots. Even slightly. I do have. I have Canadian roots. Um, my late grandmother was from Montreal originally, although ended up living in Brooklyn on the same block as one of your relatives. Which that is, is correct. My sister. We discovered this that my sister lived across the street from your grandmother at the same time um, mm-hmm. in the early two mm-hmm. thousands. Yeah, it's kind of random. But yeah, so I'm personally only a permanent resident here in Canada. Yeah, I'm just American. Um, And I have a background in academia originally, and then um, journalism and writing sort of both during and after that. And I was extremely interested in the Dreyfus affair during undergrad and wrote about that um, then and then went to grad school and did a PhD in French where I wrote so, so, so many term papers about French Jewish history, 19th century French Jewish history, especially still super interested in that. But for reasons that I myself could not entirely articulate, wound up more interested in sort of contemporary uh, North American culture and wrote a book called The Perils of Privilege that came out in 2017 about um, what's sort of now referred to as wokeness or culture wars topics. And I'm really interested in the Jewish angle on everything. I also am not particularly knowledgeable about um, Judaism as a religion. That would be my big blind spot. But I believe others on this podcast might know (laughs) just a tad. So and and will be able to. um, Yeah. Yeah. So that's um. That's it. And I, I live now in Toronto um, with my husband, two small children, and a poodle. Yeah. Okay. Who hopefully will stay quiet during recordings, but we know that that's we'll always an we'll open see. question. Yeah. It depends um, what's happening outside. Yeah. You also have another podcast on your own. That's or right. not on your own, that's but right. independent with, of this. Um, with uh, with my friend and colleague, Kat Rosenfield, who uh, I will be mentioning perhaps later in the podcast as well. And yes, it's called Feminine Chaos. And we talk about uh, it's dissident feminism and poodles is kind of the theme. We don't actually talk that much about poodles. We just both have dogs that sometimes make their presence known. Um, and I also have a Substack about uh British sitcoms called uh, Close Reading the Reruns. And uh, I'm a contributor columnist at the Globe and Mail, where I most recently wrote about Prince Harry's new book, which is oh, um, yes. quite something. Scandalous from what I hear. Um, yeah, I, I guess I assume that poodles are, are the most are the breed that are most associated with French life, French culture. 
I think so. I mean, you do see them a lot in Paris, you know, going around. Yeah. Was that was that totally accidental or was that a deliberate choice on your part? Well, I'm going to reveal something <laughs> confessional and scandalous now that it was actually my husband's idea to get a poodle specifically. I had always wanted a dog, but he um, mm, wanted a, specifically okay. a poodle. But now I am completely on the poodle bandwagon. They are very, very French and very fabulous. Yes. Very cool. And um your so uh, your writing l- it really focuses often on uh, on on this idea of privilege of on uh, where we are in society, culture wars. Um, you end up talking a bit about cancel culture. Um, yes, yes. So I ended up writing about this a bit more than I might have otherwise, partly because. I was asked to sign what turned out to be the Harper's letter. I did not know it was appearing um, in Harper's at the time because that sort of developed later. And then I wrote about specifically cancel culture um, then for the Washington Post. This was yeah a few years ago now. And I think, yes, I, so I am interested in this as a topic and tend to think of, I tend to define cancel culture as when ordinary people are subject to the um, the the standards of politicians and have to kind of and are held accountable as though they are in some kind of position of influence and authority when they're not. That's mm-hmm. sort of how I tend to understand it. Interesting. But, yeah. So so we'll get into that because I think that is going to be the topic of our main discussion, uh, which we'll hear about uh, right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. We were just talking briefly before the break about uh, cancel culture and your your definition, your ideas of it. Um, you recently wrote um, something about Irving Layton, which touched on that uh, topic in some way or another. Um, but over the break, uh, we learned about the passing of Michael Maris. He was a distinguished professor at the University of Toronto. His career sort of came to uh, an awkward, ignominious, if we can say that, sort of end. Can you tell us a bit about uh, who he was, his work? Um, you, you have a relationship to that work because of your uh, because of your studies, um, and then maybe tell us a bit about this unfortunate episode so we can get into it. Sure. So Michael Maris, um, who recently passed away at eighty one, um, and you can read uh, the obituary in uh, the CJN. He was a, he was known for his scholarship primarily on the Holocaust. He was really one of the major really groundbreaking researchers in that area. Um, He co-wrote with the American historian Robert Paxton, Vichy France and the Jews, which is really a book that kind of alerted France, whether France wanted to be alerted to this or not, to its role in the genocide of the Jews uh, during World War II. So I actually first learned about Michael Maris, not through that work, but rather through something he wrote earlier called The Politics of Assimilation, a book about 
French Jews and the Dreyfus Affair, which I remember finding really fascinating, compelling and convincing only to learn when I read it um, as an undergrad and then later learned that apparently historians find this um, this this is I guess the the bulk of French Jewish history, like the study of French Jewish history, at least in the Anglosphere, has been kind of about saying that Michael Maris was wrong, or at least it was for a time. So he's been kind of controversial for a while. But anyway, he's certainly been influential and has had and had a very you know mainstream successful academic career, you know, with all the accolades and important roles and so forth. He was uh, he had a ceremonial role at the University of Toronto once he was already retired. And that was when this controversy occurred, which was that he, um, so this was at Massey College where he was, uh, the master was the title, the title that is no longer called that, um, not unrelated to this. And he, and a black student was at a lunch that was happening there. Um, Oh no, sorry, it wasn't that he was the master. Sorry, I'm getting this wrong. Well, there, so there the was a master at there the table. There was a master. Yeah. He was just an emeritus professor there. Sorry, he was not the master. So because that now this makes sense, right? It said he, so then he said, and I'm quoting here, um, he said, you know, this is your master, A, eh? do you feel the lash? Now, why he said this when he saw a black student, I cannot say, I cannot enter into his mind. And unfortunately, he's somebody I'd always kind of hoped to interview, Um it seems like that's out. So I will never know why he said that. It seems possible that he had intended this much like, um, and we'll get into this more, other sort of better known example, even better known examples of people being sort of canceled. Um, that it seems possible that he had intended this as an anti-racist joke, but it did not come across as such. It came across as a racist and just odd remark for which he then um, ended up losing his ceremonial role. Um, and because of just the nature of the human lifespan, in a way, that's like what he's going to be known for. I mean, not entirely, but that's kind of the final piece, you know, in his career. And even though, and I would say, what was this cancel culture or not? Well, it wasn't, he didn't lose his livelihood because he was already, you know, quite old at the time, he did lose his reputation. And especially when your role had been um, that you were so known for your work on, you know, the Holocaust and, you know, that fights back against such great racist injustice, you know, to be known for having made an uh, offensive racial remark is not um, always so great. So that's, yeah, that's that. I- But that's an interesting point that you bring up. And I think that that's a a good place to start with this is that um, his, and let's take, let's assume the worst, right? Let's assume that it was really a racist, totally insensitive and, um, you know, out of line. It shouldn't have happened. Like you said, it was a bizarre line. It didn't seem like he's the kind of guy that normally does this, but whatever it is, it happens. He did something really, really bad. Had nothing to do with his work necessarily, Right. Mm -hmm. It's not like he was doing a lot of race based work or work that deals with racism or various uh, others within culture. He was a historian um, and a historian not uh, primarily of Europe. Um, And 
I don't know if he has his work, are there people that are talking about his work being canceled, like saying that we shouldn't be studying or reading it anymore? Sure. I don't think so. I don't think there's any been yeah. any, to my knowledge, there has not been any move to take Vichy France and the Jews off of all those bestseller lists that it's certainly not on. Or notable. Given. Yeah, exactly. Right. I and mean, I think, I think with a case like this, I think the loss of reputation would be more sort of to do with him personally in a way than yeah. any idea that you could no longer cite him. I think, but I don't know. I, I'm not sure what's happened with that because I think I can think more of scandals involving like somebody who's still living and some sexual harassment type scandal where it would then be like very fraught to cite that person. Especially, and yeah. I think I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to name it. I'm sorry, but like, I'm sure. thinking about like Stephen M. Cohen, yes, right. Who's had exactly. a lot of controversies attracted to him. And there's a lot of discussion around canceling, quote unquote, uh, his quote unquote, canceling his work, in addition to him as a scholar, because um, so much of the work that he did as a sociologist, as a ethnographer is tied around uh, the very issues that he is being allegedly canceled for, right? And to, mm-hmm. to go one step further, it's that he um, had a lot of, uh, I mean, the, the allegations are around inappropriate relationships with, um, with other people and uh, other women and, and and it really gets into the dynamics of power. And so much of the work that he is known for is around intermarriage and um, the fact, and how do we combat intermarriage? And um, for lack of a better way, his perception and his study and his way of thinking about the future of Judaism uh, almost reduces women to uteruses, right? The idea that we need yes. to marry Jewish women, right? Simply because that is how we propagate the species in a v- basic, basic way. Yes, and I think that that the species, I can the, the that, people, the nation. That I can, <laughs> yes, um, that I can understand more because I think that the uh, pro-natalist uh, appro- sort of approach to Jewishness, and I say Jewishness, not Judaism, intentionally because I don't think it's specifically about the Jewish religion. Um, really, is about asking something specific of Jewish women, because that's who has, you know, the babies physically, and is really, it's it's inseparable. And it's not just inseparable in the abstract. I mean, I'm thinking about when I went on Birthright Israel, when I was uh, 23, I believe, uh, that there, we were literally told on the trip, make Jewish babies, make Jewish babies, and, you know, being sort of like nudged to, um, Make them on the do trip. Do that, more or less, you know, given like the vouchers for gin and tonics to make that happen. And um, yeah, it there was something that struck me at the time even as sexist about this because it seemed to be like there are all sorts of roles that women can have in Jewish life. It doesn't mean that women, you know, couples, whatever, shouldn't have children. I myself have children now. I did not, you know conceived them on birthright Israel, however many, many years ago that was. But the fact of the matter is like, yeah, I think that's, it is related to um, a culture, I would say that I have myself seen of sort of speaking in very kind of crude terms about like, gotta get those Jewish babies out. (laughs) And that's the, if that's the Stephen Cohen 
approach to mm-hmm. to his research and to his work. Mm-hmm. And so it's related. there's clearly some power dynamic there when we say, you know, women are baby making machines. And it, like, does he perceive women as that? And therefore, is that at the core of his relationship with women that may or may not be inappropriate? And that there's right. the, inter- the tying together of mm-hmm. this says, hey, maybe we should cancel this guy and his work, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying, well, Again, supposing the worst, and it may very well not be the worst, right? Um, supposing the worst of Michael Maris of doing something really wrong at the end of his life, it has nothing to do with his work, and we're going to try to bifurcate those two. Right. I mean, I think, I don't think anybody, I could be wrong, but I don't think anybody is sitting down with the politics of assimilation or Vichy France and the Jews or any of his other work and trying to see whether, and, and trying to comb it for, you know, racist microaggressions. I think a more sensible understanding of what happened was that this was a man who was already quite old at the time, who knows what was going through his head in every sense of that expression. I have no idea what was going through his head. He himself, for all we know, didn't know what was going through his head. He said something, it was an offhand remark, whether you consider it an evil offhand remark or a stupid offhand remark or a neutral off, whatever you think of it as, it seems unlikely that in that context, it had anything to do with anything else. And um, yeah, I I did find it interesting that Philip Roth had apparently sent Michael Maris a copy of his novel, The Human Stain, which is um, Mm -hmm. thematically related. Attached to that, um, yeah. Because it's very much about like, as I see it, I wouldn't even say that with Stephen Cohen that that was cancellation exactly, because I think, I tend to think of cancellation as very much more about somebody who has done something kind of that's been willfully often rounded up to something bigger as versus somebody who's done something sort of a pattern of demonstrably bad behavior. Yeah. And I'm not going to be the holder of the definition. I think that in my mind, the, the definition is much broader. To me, it's anybody who uh, there is a call to remove this person from general society for a real or perceived inaction. And the the distinction between cancel or not cancel is basically the way that I read it and is, is whether or not the person calling for the uncancellation or the pushback or whatever it might be is um, doesn't think that what happened was wrong right? Mm-hmm. Versus the person who is calling for the cancellation, I think that that is wrong. And that that's the big distinction is like, oh, come on, that wasn't such a big deal. This person shouldn't mm-hmm. be canceled. And you hear that mm-hmm. on one side. And then the and then the other side goes and says, no, 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 this is an absolute evil, and it needs to go away. And that that mm-hmm. to me is where I see those distinctions um, in, you know, oh, that's can- that's just cancel culture, as opposed to this mm-hmm. person who deserves to go away. Right. Mm-hmm. However, right. And everybody will go and say, of course, that person, that's not cancel culture. That person did something wrong and that's supposed sure. to go away. And I'm like, yeah, but that's canceling somebody. Mm-hmm. Right. You've canceled mm-hmm. them rightly. And then that person you don't think did something wrong. And we're going to cancel that person. Uh, that person shouldn't be canceled. We shouldn't s- send that person away. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly that's where the word culture in cancel culture, I think, enters into it. I mean, it's it enters into it a couple places. One is that it's about the feeling people have that if they say the wrong thing, they'll be shunned, whether or not that's an accurate assessment of how things go. So if people are silencing themselves because they think no one will talk to them if they express a contrary view on whichever topic, then fine, that's um, in the culture. But there's also, I think, this idea of cancel culture as being something above and beyond any legal 
intervention or indeed in a case where there'd be no <laughs> plausible law broken. Um, yeah, just sort of social sanction, I think, falls mm-hmm. under that a bit as well. To me, though, the parallel that I keep coming back to within Judaism, and Judaism, I think, does have a lot to say about this, and there's a lot of parallels in a lot of places. I just want to bring up one um, right here is that I keep thinking about David, right? King David, right? Who's in the Bible, who clearly um, did something that was absolutely horrible, right? With Bathsheba. With Bathsheba, you know, I don't know if you know the story, it's uh, made famous um, in some oblique way by Leonard Cohen in Hallelujah, right? Where um, he he's on his roof and he sees this woman bathing across the way, but he finds out that she is married to this other man. Um, the, she then, he then goes and sends word that this man should go to the front because he's in battle. He's part of the, one of the troops in a, involved in a war. And that person of course uh, is her husband and he dies, uh, you know, in battle, which makes him, which makes uh, her uh, single and available and he then, you know, uh, is able to marry her and, and to be with her uh, and to sleep with her, although he slept with her prior to that. So all of this is there. And the rabbis in the Talmud um, do this thing where they say that uh, David uh, committed a great sin in error, right, by accident. Bishkaga is the term that they use in, 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 in Talmudic language, which means that it's an error of uh, omission as opposed to commission, right? You did it accidentally. And clearly, like, what's going on here and how's it going on? And I think that what they're trying to do is to, to recognize that this person did a sin, um, but that they don't want to take away this work, right? Because if they cancel David, if they say that David is a sinner, right, all of the work that David did, all of the writings, the Psalms, and all of the great, you know, stuff that happened may have to be put away and they don't want to do that because it's such a seminal part of of life uh, of jewish life at the time and uh at some point to be able to uh, to preserve that they're sort of saying well he sinned but he sort of did it by accident we don't want to cancel him entirely um and that's my read of 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 the way in which the rabbis are doing this um and i think that that distinction which we are trying to make is very important in that if the work is part of the sin, then we should make efforts to, to, to move away from it. Um, but if the person themselves did something, and and again, and we can get into this in another time or later or in a whole other episode because there's so much to say about this, um, the there is often nothing to, um, to, to, there's no path towards redemption often within cancel mm-hmm. culture. Um, but if said person has not uh, come up with a way to uh, sort of show their contrition, then we sort of say, go away, we don't have anything to do with you, um, regardless of whether the work is there or not. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, I, I don't know, like, that's where I was thinking often about the Irving Layton stuff. And that's why I brought it up at the beginning, in that, you know, and you brought this up, and you can tell us a bit about the piece. But um, th- whatever problems one might have with Irving Layton as a person um, and the relationship that he's, that, he, that he had, often shows up in the writing. Right, he's seen as this Lothario sort of figure, and and in his writing is is kind of a romantic. And if there's any problems um, with his personal romantic life, uh, then that bleeds into the work, and then that's where those questions open up. Right, it's similar to to R. Kelly, for example, where mm-hmm. you know he is convicted for something and he's talking in his songs often about the very same acts that he is um, convicted for and that brings up the big questions about what's going on 
Wow. So much there. I don't so even know much where to begin. Sorry. I mean, no, no. Uh, absolutely. Well, why don't you start by telling yeah. us about your Irving Leighton Oh, sure, piece and sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there. just to put a pin in it so I don't forget. Um, yeah, so there, yes, art and art, art versus artist, huge topic. I'm sure we will return to it again and again, including now and in talking about Irving Leighton. The question of, uh, I wanted to just add in terms of, yeah, with can- cancel culture as a topic, yes. I do think the secular versus religious angle is super interesting on this because the sort of <laughs> fundamental problem with cancel culture is that there is no, it, it comes from, as I myself do, the secular world, It, but it offers no specific path to redemption. It never, there's no, to redemption or to even anything, like it's unclear what's supposed to happen when somebody has done something wrong other than that everybody is supposed to say, oh yeah, that person, we know they're bad. And then beyond that, it's unclear um, what's supposed to happen. So I think that that's a place where maybe religion can step in with some ideas. But yes, Irving Layton, who I'd never heard about, sorry, I am not a, I'm neither Canadian nor particularly huge poetry reader. So I did not know of him until um, someone at the CJN showed me one of the, what turned out to be many, many, many um, ex-wife memoirs. And then I just kind of fell into an Irving Layton sinkhole this fall reading, not Irving Layton's poetry. Well, some of it, I shouldn't say, I read some of his poetry, but also, and I'm like capable of doing this and analyzing it, but like, that was not really where I um, went with this. I read a bunch of books by women who either women who had been involved with him. And then there was also a woman who wrote a rather scathing biography of him. And yes, it's exactly this question of, um, well, it's a little more complicated. So it's partly with the art and artist question. It's should somebody who behaved like quite a cad at best in life, should their work not um, be read anymore. But also, conversely, I think there's a danger with somebody like this, that this adds to the mystique, that knowing that he was really nasty to many women, and that these women were throwing themselves at him all the same, that might make somebody, perhaps particularly a young man, but really anybody might just make them more curious about the work. Uh, so I think there that art versus artist isn't only about, oh, no, is this person not going to be read anymore? It might be, oh, no, are people going to start reading this person for the wrong reasons? So it's, yeah, I think it's complicated. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I, to add to that layer, and I'm trying to think if like, I'm always like, oh, does Judaism have anything to say about this, right? The, the fact is that like a guy like Irving Layton, uh, it was often throughout his life, but he died a while ago. And Michael Maris died recently, but he was an, an older individual. Uh, I always say that change takes time in society. And one of the big, you know, glaring issues that I have with the people who are looking to constantly make that change happen and happen immediately is that they can't imagine change happening fast enough and that everything has to be fixed and repaired and made better as soon as possible, as soon as you've decided that this is the right way for society to go. Um, And even if it is the right way for society to go, it is difficult to change that. And you have people who are of different generations who have difficulty, um, you know, adapting to 
a new reality. And I'm not saying that we have to give them a pass, but I'm also saying that we have to understand people's lives in context and that it's difficult to shift things. And I'm willing to accept that as part of the big picture. And, uh, you know, I don't know how that frames things. And I don't know how, like, you know, if you have an 80 year old professor who sexually harasses a 20 year old, you know, it's, it's not acceptable, but, and I'm not giving this person a pass, this hypothetical individual, right? But like, I, I don't know what to do with that because that person may be coming from a place where, oh yes, I used to do that all the time and that was totally acceptable. And you know, it's not to say that it was right then, it was wrong then also, but it's the way people always were. And change takes time to really be affected, like to take root in society. We, we're 150 years since the era of slavery and we're still dealing with racism. Sure. So, oh, so many thoughts on this. Um, one is that, so <laughs> my personal belief here would be that um, I don't think that society is overall getting better or worse. I think it's just changing all the time. So mm-hmm. I don't think that we're on some kind of like march towards a better society slowly, but surely. I don't think it's really well, that. I, I, I think things are just I actually changing. think that we are. I think that we, okay. you know, so we have I, different it, views on one, of, one of the few things yeah. that I do think that Steven Pinker is right about um, okay. is that one <laughs> Give me a whole, whole, it's a comma there, not a period. <laughs> one of the few things I think is right, he is right about is that we are in one of the most peaceful eras in society, in history, because fewer people are dying um, from violent sure. acts. But we are moving in a place where things are better. There are fewer murders happening overall in life, in the universe, in, in the world, right? There is more peace happening. There is more um, wealth, even though there is more wealth inequality. There is more information, even though there is more information inequality. I think that as a general well, we are better than we were 200 years ago. But yes, a lot of it is just change. Well, I, I mean, I don't mean in terms of things like antibiotics and clean water. I mean, things like racism, sexism, all of these things. Like, are we oh, like it is society pro- sort of moving towards a less bigoted place over history? And I don't think that there is an easy answer to that. But then specifically to do with time shifting and Irving Leighton, I think it's really important to look at both how he was understood at the time and also what the time was that we're talking about. And we're talking here a lot about like the 1980s. We're not talking about a million years ago. We're talking about well into like second wave feminism already having very much had its say, you know, we're talking about eras when women absolutely were working outside the home. And I think it can be tempting to think, oh, things were happening long ago, because like you think, like you look at a black and white photo of Irving Layton and you think, oh, this is from a while ago. Fine. He, you know, he died more than a decade before the Me Too movement, but he, this is, this was all taking place at a time when, let's just say like this um, Elspeth Cameron biography of him was written published in the 1980s a woman biographer right writing about how sexist and caddish and unpleasant irving layton was in much the same ways somebody might today so i think it's not so much about like do we cancel him do we not cancel it's just like how, how do we understand him how do we classify who he was and what was going on and i would say that the um the way he was understood at the time wasn't all that different necessarily from how he'd be understood now with a huge, huge caveat. And that's what my piece was really about, which is the women who were involved with him found something romantic and also just sort of not even problematic 
about being his muse. And they found that really kind, even if they found him exasperating at times, there was something that post, I would really say specifically the Me Too movement post 2017, you would not see a woman saying how wonderful it is to be an artist's muse. And that, and that was where I felt like I didn't want to be judging um, behavior that it's just, it, it wouldn't really be my style even pre 2017, but yeah, that's certainly like living in the world I live in that it's hard for me to imagine a woman wanting that, but I also am trying to like give them their um, agency and, and they evidently really wanted that. Yeah. So again, I don't want to judge him specifically and not because he was my father's teacher, you know, <laughs> uh, in, in his youth. Um, and I have a, I have a thesaurus that uh, he gave my dad that he inscribed. So like, you know, there's, there's some connection there in, in love. I, I have no problem throwing him under the bus if he deserves it. Um, I'm not going to go there because I don't know. And, and, and you're right. Like he could have been a cad, but they may have wanted that. And uh, we get into the politics of consent around that. Uh, we can mm-hmm. bracket that for another time. Um, but we should get into what he specifically did in life. That the What made him the, such uh, a cad yeah. and the problematic. Well, yeah, yeah. Because I think, it's very easy on this topic specifically to talk about like the bad men, the bad literary men, the shitty media men list and so forth. You know, all of these um, things where you hear like some man is bad and it's unclear why. So Irving Layton basically had this pattern in relationships and I'm getting this information from these memoirs and also from a, an extremely thinly veiled novel by an additional ex-wife Um he had this pattern of kind of seducing a much younger student of his or, you know, who was some huge fan of his before even having met him and then kind of turning her into some mix of a personal assistant, typist, um, you know. What was the term? A girl housewife. Friday? Yeah, something like that. Exactly. So she's sort of doing everything for him and she's at and servicing his needs yes and she's doing this partly out of this pure love of the man and his work but also perhaps more cynically or just whatever also because she has her own literary ambitions and sees having a connection to this very well-known poet as kind of her way into the canlet world Mm -hmm. and you know leonard cohen might be at a party which you know would otherwise probably not be the case for one of these women, right? So I think um, what he did to some extent was just kind of basically behave like a mid-century domineering husband, but in artistic circles. And that was where it really like demystified it for me. Because I thought, oh, okay, well, you know, men like that, of course, like that's a type of relationship model. I'm sure he saw it all around himself just in life, you know? And it's not really unique to the arts or to poetry specifically at all. But then there's other stuff that he did that just where it just seems like he did cross a line. And the most obvious being, and this is an anecdote that came up both in one of the ex-wife memoirs and in the biography, that he had this uh, very gaudy silver necklace that he wore um, all in the all time. of the photos, that big mm-hmm. medallion mm-hmm. with the turtleneck. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, much like Prince Harry's necklace, which is on the cover of his new book and is was very oh, yes. notoriously torn off, but apparently by Prince William. You know, I was not there. I, I cannot vouch for 
what happened. <laughs> but this other necklace, um, Irving Layton claimed to have won for deflowering 14 virgins in Morocco. Now, who among us has not? No, but the point is, <laughs> who among us? What, what was that about? Well, so I immediately read this as very similar to like a, the Donald. As Trump someone who is half Moroccan, I never even heard of this ministry of you know awards <laughs> in, that they have in Morocco that you can apply for and get an award. For apparently, this. apparently, but was the necklace really that special? Anyway. Um, it's not really my style, so I would just have to leave the virgins alone. But the point is, what does that mean? Well, does it literally mean he did this? No. It, I don't know whether he did. He, he was in Morocco, though, so it's possible. If whatever, the, but this act that he's bare minimum repeatedly alluding to would be, I would say, uh, rape, rape adjacent? I don't know. I think to, you know, it's it's a kind of weird, poetic way of putting it. But if he really had sex as part of a competition with 15 virgins in Morocco. 14, please. Did you say 14? No. <laughs> I thought it was 15. I don't know. Maybe 14. No, it's wait. 20%, I, I... It's 20 of 70. 15. Which is the, oh, okay, 15. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fact-checking using my own facts. So if I got my own Thank facts you. wrong, I fact-checked <laughs> it wrong. Um, but yeah, if he really did do that, it's pretty terrible. Even if he didn't do that, it's kind of a weird, you know, line crossing remark then there's another anecdote from again one of these ex-wife memoirs where he offered i believe and i i hope i'm allowed to say this on bonjour high a titty feel to um some other writer at that i believe elderly writer's birthday party and he had not asked this writer whether that was okay he had not asked his partner if that was okay and it wasn't with either of them now, you could say, okay, well, you know, he was just a kind of that type of guy. And it's like, well, yeah, I don't know. Like, to me, that seems very different from something like trying to, you know, Talmudically parse the the power dynamics in an age gap relationship. Or like, is it really okay to for a relationship to form between somebody who was once a student, somebody who was once a teacher? I think that's a little like a puritanical road I don't think is too helpful to go down. But, you know... So then I, I think when I was researching this piece, I really did feel like there was a mix between um, sort of unpleasant, but consent, like un, unappealing to me, but still consenting adults behavior and instances of like actual sort of objective line crossing. And because it's all in like with the Stephen Cohen example, so related, you know, it's very, then it gets harder to separate. And then you get to his poetry. And then the question of like, what do you do with art where, you know, he's just like artfully saying, aren't women dumb whores, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, it's really, you know, I, 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 th I said that I was going to bring in one Jewish thing, and, and I have something else that's just been gnawing at me for the past few minutes, right? There's this category um, within Judaism of somebody who doesn't get punished for their sins because they are as, referred to as a tinok shenishba, right? And it's literally somebody who is a child who um, grows up in a, you know, in a non-Jewish environment, right? It, let's say you're a Jewish child um, who, you know, with many examples of this, you know, in, in France during the Holocaust and many other places in Europe, right, where you get sent off to a convent, right, and you grow up as a Christian for whatever reason, um, or you 
are born to Jewish parents and you are living in a secular space um, your whole life. And so you don't know anything about Judaism. And therefore, all of the sins that you are doing cannot be your fault because you don't know anything. You don't know any better. You don't know what it means to break the Sabbath or what it means to not pray, uh, what it means, any of these things, right? And you cannot hold somebody accountable for any of that because they don't know any better. They don't know any different. Um, but that's only true so far, right? It only goes gets you so far if you are an adult who is now growing, living in a Jewish environment and you are hearing all about these things and you accept them and you say, I'm going to do this regardless of my status, right? Your status as having grown up in an environment that was different um, doesn't protect you anymore. And, mm-hmm. and I think that that might be like a way to start thinking about um, all of these things and sort of like tie all these, all these strings together, right? In that if it is uh, a certain age and you're being told that this is not acceptable and you're still doing it, you no longer get the pass of saying, well, I'm from a different era. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and that that only gets you so far. You can't be offensive when even of that era, you were like, that's an offensive thing to do. And therefore, I'm, do, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it because I'm of a different era. No, even then that was considered problematic. You don't get to say I grew up in the 30s. And so I raped women all the time because that's what people did. Nobody was raping people back then. I mean, they were There was lots and lots of sexual assault. Let's get that. But, but it, it wasn't. Was, it was it still seen as a wonderful acceptable thing to do it was still problematic even though people were doing it i feel like there's another angle that we're um missing here that's actually kind of huge which is the sort of development of alongside um sort of politically correct culture of the sort of anti-politically correct um culture where you get men like andrew tate I don't know if you're familiar. I'm um, familiar, but familiarize everybody. Who, yes. Who was sparring on Twitter with, um, I'm going to mispronounce her name, Greta Thunberg. Gr- Greta Thunberg, um, yes. Right. Um, sorry. Uh, he got sweet, owned by Swedish. this. Like, yes, yeah, yes. I, I love this. So like this whole sort of culture at the extreme would be these kind of pickup artist influencers, but also, yeah, sometimes somebody like Donald Trump or, you know, who are, or Elon Musk talking about the woke mind virus or whatever. Like, I think there is a pretty strong and powerful in the sense of involving powerful people backlash to sort of the hypersensitive culture. So I'm not even sure how to classify all of it, like who's actually in charge or what, but I don't know if it works to say like today you couldn't behave like Irving Layton. It's like, or could you, you would just be not, you couldn't be behave like Irving Layton and be a progressive hero. You probably wouldn't be celebrated in the poetry world. Yeah. Or, or yeah. So the whole pickup art, you brought that up, that, 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 that yeah. term in that world that Neil Strauss made famous right. um, by writing these books and then becoming a world famous pickup artist and then disavowing them. Right. So that's <laughs> like something he did a good, good Jewish boy, Neil Strauss. Um, right. So like, as long as you're clear about what you've done, right, you're saying that you don't get canceled, but you're just like a cat of some kind or another, and you'll always have these people around. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem lies where we want to cancel certain people um, and not others, right, for similar behavior or whatnot. I, I don't know. I think that, um, you know, when in doubt, it's always better to be on your better behavior than on your worst behavior. But like, yeah, I think I'm with you. I think that really change 
it's hard to figure out what's acceptable and what's not. Um, but maybe this is where I'll bring in something very Christian. I'll bring in, you know, Pascal's wager, you know, Pascal's wager. I, that I do. Yes. Right. Um, for those of us who don't write Pascal's wager is the, you know, like in the event that uh, I, I'm going to do something, I may not necessarily believe in a good religious life, um, but I'm going to do it anyways, because in the event that there is a God, I will have lived a wonderful and I will get into the kingdom of heaven. But in the event that there is no God, I still, great, so I lived a nice life, I lived a good life, mm-hmm. and I didn't take advantage of certain things that I could have, but at least, you know, I took a I took a safe bet. And I think that that's the space where we're living now. If you think that there mm-hmm. might be a doubt that what you're doing is going to be canceled, it, it might be an acceptable act, but maybe you know, take that step back and sort of say, hey, let's 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 ease up a bit. And I'd rather be on the safe side of history in 50 years from now than be on the wrong side of history. So I guess, yeah, I, I don't really entirely see things in terms of like right or wrong side of history. But in terms of, oh, first of all, with the Pascal's oh. wager, I just have this like intense flashback to the term paper I wrote on that in college. And like, I'm remembering what it was and like kind of how silly. Do you remember was. what you got? <laughs> No, no, but I hope it wasn't an A because it wouldn't have deserved that. Um, But the, yeah, I mean, I think trying to live life to avoid being canceled is a little silly and is also, there's always for, certainly for somebody like an Irving Leighton, somebody who has a media presence, um, is a big deal in the world, whatever, they always have the option of becoming an anti-woke martyr hero right they can always do that if that's the road they want to go down and sort of making a career based and all these people want to cancel me and then they get a lot of fans and you, you get a lot of kind of media personalities now where that's their origin story and um so i think yes i think the reason to act you know nicely to people is not so you avoid being canceled because you can always yeah, become a you know bad guy media personality it's because you don't want to be awful to people sure yeah for sure i'm not i'm not denying that at all i'm just saying that if you if you are doubting whether uh your action is awful or not yeah right (laughs) might be a good idea like then it's it's possible quite possible that it's awful right you know uh, sure i had a teacher you always used to say that you know more or less always means less (laughs) (laughs) right yeah i wonder i wonder how i mean i i think when I, from what I could kind of gather between the lines of how Irving Leighton himself saw these situations, I think much like most people, he was, you know, the protagonist of his own, you know, story. And I think he saw people sort of wronging him left and right. And I don't think he understood himself as kind of a swashbuckling bad guy. I think, you know, he was an artist and he loved women a lot. And, you know, like, I think, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know whether he was. If, but I also don't know whether to what extent, like if there were consenting partners for the types of relationships he wanted to be having. That much, it's hard to say was like bad behavior. You know, it, it was just, you know, a type of behavior that has, I would say, thankfully gone out of style. It's really that other stuff like so. with this medallion necklace thing. <laughs> Um, that, yeah, see, I'm still obsessed with the fact that Prince Harry was not canceled. And, um, even though, yes, he wore a Nazi costume to a fancy dress party in 2005. Yes. 2005 was a long time ago, but there's just something in the way he's become kind of like this emblem of sensitivity and, 
um, that I find, I don't know. I, I guess maybe uh, I, I, I personally the, have not forgiven him. The news cycle the on Prince guys. Harry, I think is still fairly young. And uh, mm. uh, these biographies are, are so early and not yet written. And who knows, it may come back to get him uh, soon enough. Uh, but can you I mean, cancel a royal? See that my theory is that you cannot. My theory is that, um, and yeah, this was sort of what I was just writing about. Um, Prince Andrew was canceled. That's true. Okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> although I don't know, like because of is, a because of a good Jew, can- right, Jeffrey was- Epstein. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, I think Prince Andrew is very much persona non grata in society now. He may be, you know, ensconced in a beautiful castle with all with mm-hmm. an endless supply of money still, but I don't think that he is ever. He's going to be ever accepted. Um, in in in, in public, p- polite or impolite company. Um, so in that I'm curious sense, to I see what what yeah. comes of that. I'm curious to see what comes of that because yeah. um, that would certainly be a little victory so, for justice, maybe. But who knows? You know, and we 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 have clearly not straight very far, but straight far from our initial couple of people. Um, but I want to, if we can wrap that wrap it up and sort of like come back to like, I don't know if we have any definite conclusions, um, but I think that um, we do agree on, on on separating the art, the work from the person in, in certain cases. Yeah. Uh, are, are, are you oh, on board with that one? Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think that certainly when you're talking about somebody who is dead there, you're not like funding their continued acts by, you know, buying their book or whatever. I also think, like I was saying before, that because somebody's reputation can kind of help or hurt their book sales, you know, I I think, yeah, I think work, like work is work, art is art, you know, and I think I'm definitely the team of like, everything should be, you know, freely accessible to people. I don't think things should be like banned or whatnot, because, um, Wait, hold on. I, I I was about to wrap it up, but I got to ask you this. Then this sure. is like oh, push sure. really on okay. that. Are you willing to can? Are you willing to like unban the the medical experimentation of from Nazis um, on Jews uh, because work is work, and we 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 want to be able to separate. I mean, the work artistic from, works, artistic, artistic works. works. Okay, Although fine. this is this is sorry, but I have to <laughs> I've sh- I have to share an anecdote that's gonna. I know it's we're it's late, but it's it's too amazing to not share on this first. Um, addition with me um, is co-host on this. Um, I once saw a copy of Mein Kampf being sold in New York, and I have to tell you where it was being sold because it was just the most absurd thing at a used book sale in front of my old high school. And it was my old, I think, drafting teacher was like leading this. And I don't think anybody was even like paying any attention to what they had. And so it was like, on the one hand, you know, books should be available, even horrible books, so that people can well, you know, learn. As the son of a librarian, yeah. I remember my yeah. dad explaining to me that even the Jewish Public Library keeps a copy of Mein Kampf, right, right? You know, as part of the collection, it's not necessarily part of the freely available stacks, but anybody can ask sure. for it because information is information. I mean, this I think was to like raise money for the robotics team or something. It was something like along those lines, and I just remember thinking, well, that's that's a that's a choice. Yeah. That's a choice um, at this like largely Jewish high school in New York. Um, Yes, I do not think that work is work in the sense of like, you know, committing genocide is a form of labor, therefore should be. No, I mean, somebody's poem. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Of course, we're on, I think we're, I think we're very Are you a Wagner listener? I have a hard time. I personally have a hard, hard time with that one. I, I'm just not like, 
very knowledgeable about classical music. I'm kind of, yeah. I'm just kind of. Because it is beautiful work, but it's yeah. also, and it is tied in with anti-Semitic themes and stuff like that. So sure. we can bracket that when Wagner yeah. comes yeah. up in the news. Yeah, literature, <laughs> I have, I've had similar um, thoughts. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so so we're in agreement with that. I think that change does take time, but at some point people need to be held accountable regardless of the age in which they're from and uh, they should know better often. Um, but there needs to, to be give and take. That That's my approach to it. That sounds very measured and reasonable. Okay, <laughs> that's exactly what we aim for here in Bonjour Chai. I'm glad <laughs> that we came to a measured and reasonable conclusion um, to our discussion. Um, we would love to hear what you think. Uh, send us your thoughts. What's your take on cancel culture? Do you think everybody should be canceled? Nobody should be canceled? Any of the work? None of or the work? Or just us personally. Uh, yeah. Do you want to cancel me for something? I'm sure I said something that offended everybody today. Um, so send us in. Let us know. Uh, write to us at bonjour at the cjn.ca. Uh, tell us your thoughts. Send us a big welcome to Phoebe. It'll She'll get to see them all, I'm sure. Um, bonjour at the cjn.ca. Send us what you you think. And now it's time in the show for our Nachas of the Week. Uh, Phoebe, do you have any Nachas, something that made you feel good this week? Something that... Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, go for extremely, it. Extremely, extremely much so. Yes. So my friend and co-host of the Feminine Chaos podcast, Kat Rosenfield, who has written for Tablet, among others, um, is also a novelist. And her new novel, which is called You Must Remember This, uh, came out on January 10th. So uh, that's this week. So it's um, according to the overview from its website. I have not started it yet, but I received it yesterday and cannot wait. It's a knives, knives Out style whodunit with a twist of Taylor Jenkins Reid. You must remember this is an immersive gothic mystery with a long ago love affair, icy death, and a rich family gone bad. And uh, so Kat's previous novel, which I did read and was truly fantastic, and I would say this even if I didn't know her, uh, it was called uh, No One Will Miss Her, really like a sort of Gone Girl style page turner. She's just like every sentence she writes is amazing. Um, so I would recommend that. Book. I will check it out, add it to my list. Um, I have uh, two Substacks. Substack is the place du jour of putting all of your ideas and getting your newsletters out there. Um, somebody who I had on a previous, on a different podcast in a previous uh, time, uh, a little too, a while ago on my Remix Judaism podcast, Rabbi Joshua Rabin has this really interesting podcast that he calls Moneyball Judaism. So it's moneyballjudaism.substack.com. It's his idea that there's a lot of information asymmetry um, that exists within the Jewish community, especially in the Jewish communal professional world, and that um, he doesn't have access to the money that federations has have, but he has access to the information and he's able to look at, he wants to be able to look at things and figure out where these information asymmetries are the way that they did it in Moneyball and to sort of say, well, if you don't have access to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars for your Jewish programs, let's look at it differently and find ways to be effective without necessarily a ton of uh, money, but with a ton of information. So that's the first one um, that's really interesting. And uh, Shana Weiss, who is a professor of uh, Israeli culture. I don't know if you, uh, I know a few of you love Israeli culture, especially Israeli music. The music, yeah. The music. Okay. Um, so Shana Weiss uh, does a lot of that, and she just started her own substack called uh, It's No Ibiza. 
um, which is, uh, I don't know if you know where that comes from, uh, a very famous uh, song from Static and Vanel, right? In la nu Ibiza, right? It's a, it's a line from Sil Sulim. That I don't know. I, I'm, oh, not, it's I'm a, not a completist, but you're not, yeah, it's, okay. come on, it was a massive hit <laughs> of a couple of years ago. Zach, maybe we'll put some of that music in to, to play us out, but uh, there's a line in there. So she has a substack that is reports on Israeli culture, um, and so it's called It's No Ibiza, I believe. That sounds substack. fantastic. So check both of those out. Those are both interesting. They sound great. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending January 14th, Shabbat Parashat Shemot. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcasts is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It's one of the best ways we get new listeners and as always you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca i'm avi feingold i'm phoebe malsovi